God, um, what a gift to talk to you. Um, Help us even as we uh, collectively come to you in prayer, God, just sense your smile on us. God, you love us. Um, (laughs) And our love for you is because you first loved us, God. And what, what, what a just incredible gift, God, the gift of the gospel that you would um, supply what is our greatest need, that you would meet our greatest need, that we had been um, alienated far from you, but in Christ you brought us near. Um, we thank you for the gospel. And God, as we open your word, um, yeah, I'm just eager. I'm excited. I'm looking forward to what it is you have for us, God. Um, Get us ready for it. Prepare our hearts and our minds and our spirits and everything. Just prepare our bodies even uh, to receive your word. Thank you that when your Bible is open, um, things happen. (laughs) The Holy Spirit, you work. So we trust your word uh, to work here again today. And pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Rewind with me, I think it was back 2015 or so, my then fiance, current wife Rachel, and I were walking, uh, kind of North Lake Whatcom up this big hill, and we put ourselves in this uh, interesting position as uh, not even engaged. I don't, yeah, actually we were not engaged at that point, we were just dating. Uh, dating for a couple months or so, and we put ourselves in the position of being in a three-way phone call with this super sweet southern lady named Sally, probably about 60 years old or so, and, 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 and we had sent her some personality tests that Rachel and I had taken, and sent her these tests, the results, and Sally had sifted through the results in preparation for our three-way phone call, and we hop on the phone with Sally, and she's talking us through all these results. Hey, if you get married, these are some things that could go well for you. If you get married, these are some things that could be a challenge for you. And I I specifically remember one of the things that Sally, in her her Sally kind of way, told us. And it was this. She said, you guys are so structured (laughs) and you're such planners that one of the challenges you guys will probably have in your marriage, if you do get married, which we did, um, is going to be just being spontaneous. Being spontaneous, having spontaneous fun, um, having your plans be interrupted. She's like, that might be hard for you, but what I'm going to encourage you to do, Sally said, is to when those interruptions happen, because they will. She's like, set aside your plans and embrace the interruption, because I think God's going to have some growth in the midst of those interruptions for you too. All of us sometimes probably need a bit of a divinely orchestrated interruption in our lives. The text that we're going to look at uh, today is, is really going to be just that. As we continue to traffic through uh, the letter of 1 John together, we have John, this pastor, this, this kind of uh, this grizzled veteran pastor who's likely 80 plus years old. And so far through the letter of 1 John, he said things Things like this, don't sin, (laughs) abide in God, walk in the light, love your brother. And I'm not totally sure about this, but my guess is that the Holy Spirit inspired, I know that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write these things, and maybe the Holy Spirit inspired John even to pause as he was writing these things, as a grizzled veteran pastor who's been at it for decades, likely. He says, 
okay, maybe I should slow down. Maybe as I'm writing this letter, maybe I should deposit some encouragement into them. These verses, although they're not written to you and I, are meant to encourage you and I, just like they were meant to encourage the church that John was writing to. He was writing to, he was likely overseeing a series of house churches in the area of Ephesus, and he's writing to them to encourage them. So, my guess, if you're anything like me, is that once in a while you could use a little encouragement, some wind in the sails, a bit of a boost. John senses that for these churches, um, and I think there's something here for us, something that'll be deeply heartening. So let's go to the text, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. If you're able um, and willing, and obviously likely at home or wherever you are, um, and stand for the, for the reading of God's word. 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 says this, says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. A few preliminary remarks about this text. Number one, it's confusing. (laughs) It's real confusing. Uh, Scholars have been baffled by this text for centuries. Um, So I don't feel bad about being a little baffled about this text myself. There's some specific things that are confusing. Uh, For example, the structure, it's kind of spiraled. It's a bit poetic. It's not really linear. It's not necessarily logical. It's unlike really any other text in the entire New Testament. It's a bit confusing. Um, With that, scholars have also uh, been a bit baffled by who is John writing to? He talks about little children and fathers and young men. Who is that? What is he talking about? And I remember for the, for the first, honestly, probably half or so of my study in preparation for this sermon, I had focused primarily on who John is writing to, trying to figure out the audience. Who, who are these little children, these young men, these fathers? What is he talking about? Who is he writing to? And then I think the Holy Spirit just gently nudged me away from primarily focusing on the audience and primarily focusing on what is said. But it's a bit of a confusing thing. Who is he writing to? With that said, there is not a word wasted in this text, nor in the entire Bible, and not a word wasted for sure in this text. As we go through it, it might feel like you got deja vu a little bit. (laughs) Maybe you do, maybe you don't, but it's not because of this text. It might just feel that way. John repeats himself in this cyclical nature for the purpose of 
adding emphasis. So what do we do with all this? How do we make sense of all this? I think what John wants to do is to deposit this encouragement into these churches in Ephesus in turn that they would be encouraged and that encouragement would then produce some maturity. So a couple hopes I have um, for you if you are a Christian listening to this is that you would be deeply encouraged in Christ Jesus. And if you're here and you're tuning in and, and not a Christian or asking questions about Jesus or kind of dipping your toes, whatever it might be, my hope is that you, as you would listen to this, that you would see that this could be yours. This could be true of you if you put your faith in Jesus. All right, let's take it one verse at a time. I'll spend a little more time on the front end of these verses, a little less on the back, but here's that's, that's where we're going. 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. Okay, John is saying, I'm writing to you, little children. Who's he talking to? Is he talking to people who only watch Pete the Cat? Is he talking to people who are K through 12? Is he talking to people who are young? Who is he talking to? Well, the context of 1 John is going to help inform us with regard to who his audience is when he says little children. This is not the first time and it won't be the last time that John uses this affectionate term of endearment, little children, in this letter. Earlier on in 1 John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says this. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 1 John 2, 28 says, and now, little children, there's that term again, little children, abide in him. 1 John 3, 18 says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So my suggestion is, is that little children quite simply yet meaningfully refers to children of God. It's kind of a catch-all, one-size-fits-all term for any Christian. John is writing to Christians. <clears throat> With that, this one-size-fits-all kind of category, I think... Um, and again, scholars have, have, have disagreed about this over, over a long, long time, but, but, but my suggestion is that there's two subcategories within the overall category of little children, those two subcategories being, um, as John says, fathers and young men. Some people think that when it says fathers and young men, it's talking about age, how old someone is. Other people think it's talking about spiritual maturity, a degree of spiritual maturity. For example, fathers would be anyone who believes in Jesus who's, who's more mature in Christ, and that young men would be anyone who believes in Jesus who is um, a, a bit less mature in Christ. Some people think that. What I want to make clear, I don't want to spend too much time on some of the things that are confusing. I want to spend more time on the things that are clear, and here's one thing that is clear, that what John says of each of these categories of people is not exclusively true of only that category of person. I'm gonna say that one more time. What John says to each of these categories of people is not exclusively true of only that category of person. For example, when he says, those, when he says um, 
In verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. There are people that you and I likely know and people um, in that church likely in Ephesus in these house churches that were not fathers that did know him who is from the beginning. We know that. So what John says of each of these categories of people is not exclusively true of only that category of person. John, again, 80-plus likely years old, been a pastor for a while, says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. How? How does John say that? I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. How? The gospel. From week one in 1 John, if you're with us and if you remember, um, we said the Christians start with the gospel and never stop. What is this gospel? I'll say it this way, a short answer for it and then maybe a longer answer for it. Short answer, the gospel is this, it is the great news that God rescues rebels, a.k.a. people like you and people like me. God rescues rebels. How's that all work? So, so if God rescues rebels and, and, and forgiveness can be a thing, as he's writing to this church, I'm writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven. How does that all work? Let's back up, zoom out for a second. How does this whole gospel thing work? Number one, sin alienates. Sin separates us from God. You and I, according to the Bible, are born sinners. We're sinners by nature and we are sinners by choice, both. Double whammy. (laughs) Sin alienates us. It separates us from God, the very God that we were created to be in relationship with. And yet sin gets in the middle and, and is a dividing barrier between you and I over here Sinful by nature, sinful by choice, and God over here who is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. Sin alienates us from God. Because of that, because of my sin, because of your sin, the wrath of God is rightfully on anyone who doesn't know Jesus. Because of my sin, because of my rebellion against the holy God, I, uh, justice would be served if I got God's wrath. Where does that leave us? A deep, deep need. <laughs> A need for forgiveness. What does God do with that? His, his heart aches for, longs for, that alienation to no longer be a thing. And he, he does something about it. He does so much that he sends. We, we had this big word a, co- a couple weeks ago, earlier in First John, this word propitiation. He provides a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. And guess who it was? It was his son, Jesus. God says, I don't want you 
to be alienated from me anymore. I want, to be, I want you to come back to me, be reconciled back to me, but I am such a just God that you can't just be sorry of your sin and then I forgive you. There has to be a propitiation. There has to be a wrath-bearing sacrifice and I love you so much that I will send my own son to take the wrath that you deserve so that you, through faith in him, might be reconciled back. Jesus lives the life you and I were called to live, dies the death you and I deserved as a propitiation. And then raises from the dead, conquering sin, Satan, and death. The gospel is the great news that God rescues rebels like you and me, and he does it through Jesus. And if you trust in Jesus, then what John says right here in verse 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. If you trust in Jesus, guess what? Your Sins are forgiven. <laughs> Just let it sit. Your sins are forgiven. For some of us, that's all we need right now. <laughs> Maybe for all of us. <laughs> Through faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Let's not scurry over that. Hmm. I remember talking to a friend of mine, or maybe a friend or at least an acquaintance of some of you, Claude Acho, who um, him and his wife went and planted Redeemer Boston a handful of years ago. And I remember talking to him, this was back in 2013 or maybe 2012, right before Claude was about to be sent out. And he was kind of doing a bit of a finishing school, like the last six months before he's getting ready to go um, plant Redeemer Boston. I remember talking to him. I think I was talking to him on the phone. I was just, man, tell me, tell me what you're learning because he was learning all this new stuff. And I was, I was eager to, that, that, that Claude would drop something profound on me. And you know what he said? He said, Pete, I've, I've been relearning the gospel. You know what Claude was saying, it, it, at least in part, is that he was relearning that he has been forgiven, that there is a great God who rescues rebels and forgives them. <laughs> All of life, we could say, is entering deeper into that truth, that for the Christian, you are forgiven. What if you don't know? <laughs> what if you don't feel forgiven. Here's how you know. <laughs> you are forgiven if you believe in Jesus. I want to make it as plain as possible. You are forgiven if you believe in Jesus. It's not dependent on the quality of your faith. It's dependent on who your faith is in. Belief in his life lived perfectly in your place. His death on the cross of anyone in the place of anyone who trusts in him and his resurrection from the dead. Believe in that Jesus, the God-man, the Jesus of the Bible. And 1 John 2, 12 is true of you. You are forgiven. David Allen says this. He says, your sins have been once and for all forgiven and will never Never be brought up before God again. <laughs> Let the shackles of guilt and shame maybe just slip off. The shackles of pretending before God or trying to earn your way to God 
Just fall by the wayside. David Allen also says this. He says, my sins, however massive, (laughs) however filthy, were not too much for the great God of mercy to pardon. You know what mercy means? Mercy means we don't get what we deserve. I don't get what I deserve. You know who got it? Jesus. And because Jesus got it instead of me, God the Father pardons me. That's his mercy. My sins, however massive, however filthy, were not too much for the great God of mercy to pardon because of the unsearchable riches of Christ's atonement. There is no single sin so great No mass of sins so many that they are beyond the forgiveness of God. The disease appears fatal. I am a hopeless case. That's need for the gospel. That is our need for the gospel, our need for a rescue, our need for forgiveness. Yet, the great physician heals (laughs) on the basis of his shed blood on the cross and glorifies himself in the process. 1 John 2, 12, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. So that when a sinner like you and I are forgiven, no doubt we'd receive the benefits and God looks super good because of it. Beautiful. The banner over the entire Christian life could be this, that you are a forgiven child of God's sons and daughters, completely forgiven before the Father. We don't need trophies on a mantle or a report card on a fridge. You are forgiven in Christ. And because you are forgiven, here's what happens. You'll mature. John gives this deep-seated encouragement knowing that as this church, these house churches in Ephesus, as they're encouraged, it will evolve into a motivation for Christ-like maturity. Let's look at verse 13. He goes on. He says, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. Him. Who is him? Who do they know? It's Jesus. They know Jesus Christ. A mark of maturity is knowledge of Jesus and not merely an intellectual knowledge, but one that is intimate. I was hanging with a friend of mine, a guy who's been following Jesus for a couple decades plus, probably in his late 60s, 70s, and I remember we we, we were just hanging out, um, talking, and I remember he just looked at me, and he, I can't even remember the context, but he just looked at me, he said, Jesus is God. Jesus is God is God. And a third, maybe even a fourth time, he said, Jesus is God. (laughs) He wasn't learning that for the first time. He didn't just realize it. It's the same truths that helped him become a Christian that were just deepening into the terrain of his soul. One of the marks of Christian maturity is not necessarily knowing more stuff but not graduating from the stuff that helped you know Christ in the first place. John is saying this in this text. He's saying, dear Christian, you know Jesus. I want you to know that you know him. (laughs) Verse 13, I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. 
John wants these Christians, some of which have a tender conscience. He wants them to know that they know Jesus. He goes on, he says, I'm writing to you young men because you have overcome the evil one. Again, question, this has baffled scholars for, for, for a long, long time. Does young men actually mean young men? Is it age? Is it spiritual maturity? Degree of spiritual maturity? One thing we do know from the language here is that Paul, sorry, not Paul, but John, um, is not translating young men, like, like, a, like a proper translation of young men wouldn't it be something like this. It wouldn't be like punk kids. John is not going to call them little children and then turn around a second later and call them punk kids. This is not an insult when he says young men. Another question I have of this text is, is this, is, is overcoming the evil one talking about withstanding false teaching? Because that's part of the context here, is that there's these false teachers. People who, 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 who come into the church, into these house churches in Ephesus and try to deceive. <clears throat> what John is doing here is he is appealing to their victory over Satan. When he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one, he's appealing to their victory over Satan, to their ongoing battle, likely against false teachers who are trying to deceive them. He's saying this, he's saying, way to go. <laughs> You're doing great. Keep going. Almost like a teacher would come alongside a student struggling with a math problem and be like, hey, remember that math problem you were struggling with last week? And then you had some victory? In a similar way, John is reminding these people of past victory in a previous and potentially ongoing spiritual battle as they look forward to the future. And John is saying this. He's saying Satan won't win. <laughs> I want to share a bit of a story um, from a pastor, author, theologian, John Piper. Um, he says this. He says, if you feel like your sins are not forgiven, that Jesus is gone, you don't know him, and Satan is the victor, what's your motivation or hope? Picture a soldier in a slimy foxhole. Where is that soldier going to get any strength or courage to fight? If all he can think about is how he went AWOL last weekend when they were fighting and half of his company got wiped out. Where is he going to get any courage if as he lies there, he thinks how he used to know the commander? But now the commander is gone fighting in some other battlefield where there's hope. And how is he going to have any courage or incentive to fight if in fact he looks up from the slimy foxhole and there are 50 enemy soldiers armed standing around the lip of his foxhole pointing guns down in his face? Well, he is not. He's not going to have any incentive 
or motivation. All that soldier is going to want to do is roll over and put his face in the mud. Unless there is hope of winning, there is no motivation to fight. The beautiful illustration by John Piper, and I think what what we want to see here is that Pastor John, the one who's writing this letter of 1 John, wants to motivate the church by way of encouragement. And what does Pastor John say to these house churches that are likely filled with people in, 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 in the midst of crises, both big and small? in the midst of turbulence from some false teachers, in the midst of some people leaving the church, in the midst of hostility, people who are probably tired, discouraged, not sure if they can keep going. What is Pastor John going to say to them? Here's what he tells them. He says, I want you to know this, your sins are forgiven. (laughs) That you know Jesus. And Satan's not going to win. That's what he tells them. <laughs> he goes on, second part of 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, and he says this, I write to you children. This is where the deja vu starts to kick in a little bit. I write to you children because you know the Father. Earlier in verse 12, he says, little children, you Your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And now he says, I write to you, children, because you know the Father, okay? I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning, adding emphasis by repetition. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you. And you have overcome the evil one. I got a text from one of my grandmas earlier uh, this week, I think it was Tuesday morning. Um, I was just getting out of a meeting and, and kind of preparing for, for another meeting. And I call her Grammy Bear. I called her that from the get-go. I think it's because she gave me gummy bears when I was a kid and she was Grammy, so she became Grammy Bear. Um, got a text from Grammy Bear Tuesday and she sent it, a mass text to all of her grandchildren, of which I, I think she's got 17. And this is what she said. She said, good morning, grandkids. For some time, I've prepared a letter in my head to write to you. Sunday being Pentecost Sunday, this last Sunday, and the wonderful event of, and she says one of my cousin's names, the wonderful event of such and such as baptism prompts my heart. So many young people are leaving or being careless about their walk with Jesus, yet We have this beautiful young woman step up and get baptized. She says, we need our young to stay strong and carry on. Can we imagine a world without Christianity? I'm trying to be a bit bolder. Baby steps. A friend wrote me these words 50 plus years ago. She says this, cling fast to your faith. It is your most precious possession. She goes on, I know you are all doing a great job. We need to keep the fire burning. Love you all, Grammy. I went on and we exchanged some text messages and and I asked her, I said, Grammy, what, what helps you cling fast to your faith? And we went back and forth and um 
The text message that she responded with that stood out to me, at the end of it, she said this. She said, glance at the world, gaze at Jesus. Glance at the world, gaze at Jesus. And as I read and reread that text from my grandma, I wondered to myself, how do Grammy Bear and her husband Papa Jim, how do they gaze at Jesus? And then I remember back to times when I was a kid when Grammy Bear and Papa Jim would come to stay at our house and I remember um, helping them uh, bring their suitcases upstairs and get it ready and I remember them opening up a suitcase and seeing a battered Bible and taking out that battered Bible and putting it on a nightstand. A Bible that had been well loved and well worn. I remember stories of my grandpa, Papa Jim, telling me as a young boy uh, the Bible studies he was part of, his Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. Bible study, his Friday afternoon lunchtime Bible study, their own personal devotions that they would do. And I, it registered to me that how Grammy Bear and Papa Jim gaze at Jesus is that they're in his word. The word of God abides in them. Just like it says at the end of verse 14, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. At the end of this little chunk of encouragement, Pastor John says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong. How are you strong? How are these people strong? Answer, The Word of God abides in you. The Bible is in you. You are getting the Bible into you. And what happens when that happens? You overcome the evil one. So what do we do? (laughs) What do we do with all this? How do we wrap a bow on all this? how, how, How do we make sense of this? Quite simply. Let us listen to the words that Pastor John wrote to these churches. And let us just receive those for us. Your sins are forgiven. You know Jesus. Satan won't win. Be encouraged. And let that encouragement ooze out into motivation to look more and more like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, um, thank you for this text um, that is breathed out by you, that is profitable for teaching, for proof, for correction, for training in righteousness. God, will we know those who follow Jesus, those who are Christians, God, will we know that our sins are forgiven? The ways that, that the enemy wants to, to, to seed lies into our heads or in our hearts. Being like, you're not really forgiven. What about that? You keep struggling with that. God, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would convince us that God, if we are truly forgiven, God, that we would know that we are forgiven. That we would know that we know Jesus.
and that we would know that Satan's not going to win. And God, do um, what you did through Pastor John to these churches in Ephesus. Would you do that for us, God? Would you give us deep encouragement by these things? And would that encouragement motivate us to look more and more like Jesus? We thank you. We trust your word is effective. We pray you do your thing through this text in our lives. Impress us with Christ. Transform us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.